welcome to another episode of Mentor Musings. I'm JC, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host and friend, Brett. Hey, Brett. Hey, JC. How are you today? Doing great. Another week Excellent. in Startup Paradise. Exactly. Uh, so, so, Brett, you know, uh, interestingly enough, this week was April Fool's Day, um, which is a pretty interesting myth, and I won't go too much into it for anybody who wants to know. Uh, the origins of the myth are, are, are pretty, uh, pretty widespread. A lot of people believe it was when we switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. And there were people in the world who were celebrating New Year's Eve, essentially the first week of April because they were on the wrong calendar and people made fun of them and and all of that. So, but it got me thinking uh, in the world that we live in, Brett, startups and, and entrepreneurs, there's a ton of myths the founders seem to, you know, get into their heads, whether they, they see it on Shark Tank or they watch it in like the social network or they read it in a book or wherever they get these ideas from. I thought it might be a good episode just to talk a little bit about a couple of myths that we typically encounter as mentors that we like to, to break down. So I'm curious, what's what's one of the bigger myths that, that you tend to find um, as you're working with a startup that you like to dispel? Yeah, part of this may be more recency bias, but I think one of them is uh, TAM, right? So if you've been in the startup world for any amount of time, for whatever reason, this is either now a buzzword or there's just more of an intense focus on how big is your TAM, which it get the target markets important. But when you're starting out, I find it so much more important. I'll use the phrase uh, riches in the niches, right? The more nuanced you can be and more laser focused on one market, solving that problem than expanding is such a better strategy than trying to market the entire. So if the market's 29.1 million people, man, you're better off going after 10,000 in the early days to to get really laser focused on on that. So I don't know, Dennis, if you're seeing much of uh, Dennis JC, sorry, it must be Friday. Uh, do you see that as well? I'm just curious. Maybe that's just something I've noticed recently. And um, Curious if you're seeing it as well. Yeah, no, I absolutely do see it uh, quite a bit. You know, I think the origin of it, I'm just going to guesstimate, is a lot of people feel comfort in knowing that they're going into a really big marketplace because it, it allows for, I think they believe, a, a wide margin of error. And yeah, there's some truth to that. And, and I know we're going to talk probably more about this in another myth, but uh, a big part of this too is, is investors. You know, they want that big vision, that really big market. But, you know, I think to your point, what founders should embrace is that while having a large TAM is great, your TAM is not your target market. And your goal uh, should be to get to as narrow and specific of a niche as you possibly can. I had an old business school professor who used to uh, say that it's better to get 99% of a grape than 1% of a watermelon. And um, I think there's a lot of truth in that. So while you want this really expressive and expansive TAM, um, the most successful startups find value in targeting uh, like you said, the right 10,000 customers rather than the wrong, you know, 10 million customers. Yeah. And I think just to add on to that, when you're thinking about your, your target market, if you're, for example, going after two different verticals, or if it's in the B2B space, you're going after, you know, the B2B company that's going to provide a benefit to their workers, or if you're going straight to the workers, right? The messaging is completely different. The content that you need to attract those folks is going to be completely different. So the amount of effort that you have to put to go after different industries or verticals you just don't have the time or the or the bandwidth to do that and you need to be doing content so i think that's again maybe more of the the, the recency right with the the inf- increased focus on content and content creation i think it's just from a bandwidth and a timing perspective a founder is going to be better off just picking one path <laughs> 
Very well said, Brett. So, okay, so here's a myth I want to throw at you, and I'm curious, uh, you know, what what response you have here, or if you encounter this a lot. So, when we start startups and we start ventures, you know, we always think about the end goal. We think about where we want to end up, or at least we should. You know, you, you build the the on ramp of tomorrow today type thing. Right. And so, for for most startups and for most founders, that that on ramp is they're building towards an exit, whether it's an acquisition or an IPO or or just you know kind of reaching that that monumental success. The myth in this area that I see is when I ask founders, you know, what their roadmap and what their timeline is, and I'll get answers ranging from, well, I believe I can exit in the next two years to the next five years and, and so on. Um, and so a lot of founders tend to think, well, I'm going to be able to exit this a lot quicker than is probable. I mean, if you look at it statistically, the average startup exits within 12 to 15 years, somewhere within that window. And that's that's average. That means there are startups that, you know, companies that take 20 plus years to exit. And yes, there are some that exit in that five to seven window range. But I think um, the myth that I would dispel most often is making sure that founders may hope and anticipate a possible off-ramp sooner. And it, it depends a little bit on the industry you're in, but to actually try to plan for, you know, probably a more elongated off-ramp to selling the venture. Brett, do you encounter that often? No. That the founders tend to think that it's going to take a lot shorter than it really does to, to be able to exit? 100%. And any of the loyal listeners to the, the B2B Founder Podcast will know hearing from these founders' stories that one of the reoccurring themes, and these are the folks that I have on that have now gone past the, the 10 million in revenue, so they've kind of broken through, is, you know, I was a 10-year overnight success. And I'm averaging what the years, but it's, it's almost consistent. Uh, got another episode coming out next week with a guy at B2B company. It took nine years, a couple pivots, but finally the sweet spot. Now they're growing like crazy. So I would say that's definitely more the norm than the, the average, or I guess one and the same, that, yeah, 10, it, 10 years is the right plan if you're not in it for the long haul. And as we talked about previously, right, with unicorns are so rare, right, you got to build this for something that you want to be a part of the process for a decade, right? If you're not prepared to do that, then this may not be the, the path for you. Absolutely. Yeah, I think... You know, again, just dispelling the origin of the myth, too, I think the reality is, is the goal of every startup is to grow that enterprise value, that EV. And, you know, for a lot of startups, you know, you don't want to sell that process short. You know, unicorns, uh, the horn of a unicorn is built. And, and even if you're not going to become a billion dollar company, you know, you are building that enterprise value over time. And so a lot of times the, the function of the exit is when you've exhausted or when you've kind of reached your potential of EV where someone else coming in and acquiring you can continue to grow your EV for you. So, you know, I think about a lot of the companies that, that we've exited. Factor 75 is a great example. You know, that's a company that was able to grow up and, and really acquire, you know, their niche market share, like we were talking about on the last myth, um, and then only at the point that they were able to grow and get this offer from HelloFresh, which is the company that acquired them, uh, did it actually make sense. They had kind of not exhausted their enterprise value growth, but they had reached a sufficient level where they weren't leaving money on the table. They had kind of brought it to a, a fully and, and complete stage. So I think a big function is startups that, that, that maybe you know exit earlier than that are rare, but most startups that don't um, reach 10 years, you know, don't end up exiting. So I think there's there's some correlation to fully pursuing that pathway and giving yourself as much chance as possible to acquire that enterprise value so that you can actually find the exit that you want. Yeah, no, I think that's that's such good advice. And I think we, we had a couple other myths that we could go. So I'm curious, I'll let you pick this one. One is 
do I need to raise money to be successful and or do I need a technical founder to be part of the process? So I'll let you use your choice on this one. Well, I know I know, Brett, we talk all the time about fundraising and it's so funny because you and I are both investors. And so you know, we sit here and we're we're talking about, you know, how, you know, the downplay, the importance of investment. But I would go with that one. I think, in my opinion, a lot of founders tend to approach their startup as how do I secure funding, you know, or, or this this idea that their goal is to acquire funding. And yes, fundraising is typically uh, an important part of the journey for the vast majority of startups, but it is a false equivalency. It's not the actual objective. Fundraising does not produce enterprise value, right? So the goal is enterprise value. Fundraising enables the attempt to acquire enterprise value. But yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of founders do overemphasize the importance of fundraising or at least the timing of the importance of fundraising. What do you think, Brett? Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And maybe it's contrarian within the, the VC space, but I would much rather see a, a growing company with good unit economics, right, that shows a path to profitability that, you know, I just think there's good value. If we look back to another stat that, you know, less than 1% actually to get 10 million in revenue. My goal or I, anybody I work with is let's figure out what is that plan to get you to 10 million. It may require a little bit of funding, right? Hopefully not too much where you're not giving away too much of the company because when you get to that 10 million mark, a little arbitrary, but I feel like that's when you've unlocked a lot of the valuation of your business. And then you open yourself up to go take additional capital if you need it for, you know, to really grow rapidly. But the less you can take early on and the more you can focus on building it through profitability, I'm just, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of those companies because even if you don't get the unicorn exit, your your valuation is still going to be 10x higher than you know what it would be if, if you never reach that level. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer if you can bootstrap, bootstrap and then strategically take the money where you need it, but have a plan. I don't know if you see this, but the number of companies that, hey, we're going to raise 3 million. Well, what are you going to do with the 3 million? Well, we need X, Y, and Z, no details behind it. So man, you got to have a plan. I'm curious if that's consistent with what you see. Oh my gosh, Brett. I, I mean, I, I shudder to think at the tens of millions of dollars that I've seen raised. Uh, I don't know, uh, hundreds might be too much, but it's a lot. Many tens of millions of dollars where the founders get the money. And then I can remember one distinct moment. I won't name the company because they're awesome. They exited, thank God, and they, they did great. But I remember they got the money in their account and we actually watched them click refresh on their bank account, refresh, refresh. And then it was like $20 million. And I remember the, the founder basically turning and saying, what do we do with this? And I was like, well, you better have a plan. I mean, you like, you've got it. You need to do something with it. I mean, and they had a plan, but I think to your point, Brett, um, it is a bit like a, you know, a dog chasing a car, you know, once you actually get it, it's like, what the hell are you going to do with this now? So um, that's where if you have a plan for it and you know, a use of funds that makes sense that acquires enterprise value, there's a direct line to doing that. Then yes, absolutely go out and raise money to your heart's content. But this idea that well, I'll go raise money first because that's the hardest part and then I'll figure out what to do with it. All you're doing is deluding yourself and all you're doing is exhausting a ton of effort. I, I would agree with you, Brett. I think some of the best companies out there that I've ever been a part of as an advisor, a mentor, an investor, whatever, uh, are companies that 
kind of walked towards profitability on their belly. They focus on those unit economics, your CAC and LTV, because when you do raise in the future, it's going to be based off of those metrics anyway, right? right. So when yep. you do raise around having a compelling, you know, unit economic profile, a compelling revenue profile, it's going to be the thing that the, the VCs and the angels really focus on, particularly in the B2B space, but, you know, but also in the direct to consumer space. So I think no matter what, that's a problem you have to solve. Whether you fundraise now, you fundraise later. So, you know, why not bootstrap and why not walk towards that profitability and, and have a lot more confidence in how you would use the funds and then how you can acquire the funds. Yeah, no, well said. And I think, yeah, it is even, even I'm seeing in the industry now with the research and uh, the, the VCs even who have invested in just ideas, right? Don't care necessarily about the profitability. They're, they wanna see what the plan is to get there, right? If you can't articulate or show how you're gonna be profitable at some some reasonable time frame, you're going to run into the risk of not getting the investment either. So I think that pendulum starting to shift back where they're going to be looking for at least a plan to profitability. Again, I'd rather see it up front knowing that if I buy or make manufacture 10,000 of these widgets, I can drop the price by half if I can manufacture 100,000. 100, Completely understand that, but you have a clear path to that the unit economics. If you don't, you're just like, well, we're just going to go get that TAM <laughs> and we'll figure out how to make money from it later. Not not recommended from my book. And like I said, maybe I'm a little more contrarian in that sense, but I like to see the the, the profitability or at least the, the path to profitability early on. Well, there's nothing wrong with being contrarian. Contrarian is what dispels myths, right? I mean, myths yeah. happen because that's what a lot of people believe. But, you know, there are contrarian mentors and advisors out there like you and, and myself and a lot of other people. So, you know, that's what we're here to do. So I think that's a good stopping point, Brett. Um, everybody, thanks for joining us this week. Uh, again, as always, Brett and I are here as your, your guides and mentors to this process. Please feel free to reach out, like, subscribe, comment. Uh, and above all else, best of luck with your venture. And we'll see you next time. Yeah, sounds good. Have a great weekend. Cheers. Bye, everybody.